0: Father, would you give us the strength to live up to our songs? That the reality of our everyday living would meet up with the intention and the desire of our hearts is our prayer. Father, we want to live for Jesus. We want to walk in obedience to your word. and So we need your strength. We need your help. The world presses in on us. The old ways hang on and are so hard from which to break free. And yet we believe in the power of Your Holy Spirit to lead us, to strengthen us, to give us victory over sin. And then to live out the high calling of Christ and and to experience His resurrection power. Father, would You use Your Word now? Use it to cleanse us. Use it to convict us. Use it to challenge us. Give us the desire through Your Holy Spirit, through the, the strengthening power of the Word, to go from here and walk in obedience. Thank you for the practical instruction from your word that teaches us about ourselves, that helps us see more clearly how it is to follow after Jesus. We commit this time to you, Lord. Use it, we pray. Amen. I wonder if you know the names Nadab and Abihu. You know those guys? Nadab and Abihu. You don't have to turn there in your Bible. It's Found in Leviticus chapter 10, verse 1. Leviticus is one of those books that you rarely visit. It's filled with ceremonial law, some moral law as well, instruction given to Israel of old through Moses. It's in the Old Testament. I actually invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 6, where we're going to pick up in our series in Matthew, in Matthew 6, beginning with verse 1. While you turn there, let me tell you about Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus chapter 10. You need to know that Nadab and Abihu were good guys. They were were God's men. They grew up in good homes. In fact, you'll probably recognize the name of their father. Their father was Aaron, Do you remember Aaron? Aaron was the high priest in Israel. He was like the religious leader. He had a very well-known brother. His brother was Moses. Do you remember that when God called Moses to lead Israel out of the wilderness and Moses had that burning bush experience, that he looked up at God and he said, But I can't speak. How can I lead? And he made excuses. And one of the things among many things that God did to illustrate His power in Moses' life As he said, you are without excuse. In fact, I've appointed your brother Aaron to speak for you. So Aaron was one of the mouthpieces of the leadership of Israel. He was a spiritual leader in Israel. He had two sons. He had more than two sons, but two of his sons were Nadab and Abihu. Nadab and Abihu grew up in Aaron's household. Their uncle was Moses. In Israel at this time, as as they were traveling through the wilderness for these 40 years you need to know that part of the spiritual leadership structure that God built into their lives was 70 elders. So there was this group of 70 elders. Do you know that when that group of 70 elders is referenced in our Old Testament over and over again, it's usually just called out as, and the 70 elders. But do you know who gets named? Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and the 70 elders. Now, these guys were in a very important position in that they helped lead the religious function, the sacrificial system that was in place. It was very ceremonial. It had, a, it had very rigorous rules that were to be kept that were given directly by God, how to wash, how to dress, how to act, what to do, what kind of offerings. And among the offerings that they, set, that they offered to the Lord... It was very physical, it was very visible. Among those offerings were some offerings that had to do with fire. You know, fire that burns things up. And God had specific instruction. Part of that was, there was a such thing as a burnt offering. The symbolism of a burnt offering, for example, it's very it's very um, clear and it's easy to understand. So when an animal was given over to God and it represented the people. There were different ways that burnt offerings were used. But once it was burnt up, it was over, right? It was done. Sometimes it symbolized uh, how sin was gone. Sometimes it symbolized how something was completely given over to God. It couldn't come back. And it was burnt up with fire. There was other offerings that involved fire where they would burn incense, And they would burn this incense so that this smell would go up in the air and fill the air where they were worshiping. And that smell, that odor, was to go up, as it were, into the very nostrils of God. And it was a pleasing aroma to Him. All this was given under strict instruction by God. Most of it involved pictures of things that were fulfilled in Christ. That Christ ultimately fulfilled all these offerings, all of these sacrifices. Ultimately, Jesus himself is the ultimate sacrificial lamb who went to the cross and his blood flowed to pay the penalty for our sin. It's all very vivid. It's all very real. It's all for a very specific purpose. Now, I say all that to tell you that Nadab and Abihu were spiritual leaders under this system. They grew up in it. They were instructed in it. They had watched their father Aaron participate in it. And then in Leviticus chapter 10, we have a very interesting story. We don't have a ton of detail. A lot of the details aren't there, but we know enough to know that they were leading worship. They were involved in spiritual acts. I want you to keep that in mind in Matthew chapter 6, because Jesus is going to talk about parts of our worship and spiritual activities in which we participate. Nadab and Abihu are involved one day in leading worship. The congregation has gathered, so people are watching. I want you to keep that in mind when we get to Matthew chapter 6. In Matthew chapter 6, in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is teaching, he's talking about when people can watch us do spiritual things. It's done in public. How important it is that our heart attitude be correct. This is illustrated in Nadab and Abihu in that we don't know exactly what they did, but instead of going to the brazen altar where a pot of fire that was ordained of God, this fire given by God was there that they were to use even a certain kind of fire. They weren't supposed to just go get fire from somebody's lighter. But they were to use God's fire off of God's altar and somehow... They started thinking about the wrong stuff. Somehow Nadab and Abihu were careless with their heart attitude. They were careless about what God thought. They were careless about the fact that they knew that God saw every detail of their steps of worship and they evidently were caught up in the moment of their own spiritual leadership and the Bible says in Leviticus chapter 10 beginning with verse 1 there at the early part of the chapter that they offered the word is a strange fire in other words a fire that God didn't recognize God saw it and God said that is a disqualified fire it is an unacceptable procedure here's what happened God sent real fire then. God sent His fire and He killed them. Two good guys. These aren't Canaanites. These aren't Amalekites. These aren't Philistines who have have worn out the mercy of God and the wages of their sin finally catches up with them. These are God's people serving the Lord that day in front of God's congregation doing things God's way. They just did it a little differently. And God said, that is unacceptable, and He killed them. We don't know what it looked like, we don't know, but it says that fire fell from God, their strange fire was unacceptable, and they were so burned... That it killed them, but their bodies still existed. It didn't consume them because Moses told the young men to come in there and carry their corpses out. They put coats down on the floor, picked up the corpses, set them on the coats, picked up the coats like they were stretchers and carried them out. And Moses turns to his brother Aaron. Those were Moses' nephews, Nadab and Abihu. And Moses turns to Aaron and says to Aaron, Don't, don't tear your clothes. Don't put on, don't cut your hair. Don't cut your beard off. All the signs of grieving. He said, don't worry about it. They're done. It's over. Keep serving the Lord. And his father couldn't even grieve. God just said, that's unacceptable to me. Whoa. Now, one thing that does, one thing that does is it really, really makes me thankful to be in Christ. Because Christ is, kept the law for me. Christ never, ever participated in strange fire. Even though I have, Christ never did. And what Christ did has been credited to my account for my salvation. And when God looks at me in Christ at the foot of the cross, that he sees everything Christ did for me, credits it to my account, and therefore I'm good to go in the presence of God. So it's it's as if Christ is a firewall. He keeps the He keeps the fire of God from burning me up. And ultimately, the wages of sin is death, and the eternal lake of fire does exist. And those whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life, ultimately Christ will be the ultimate fire insurance, won't he? Be, be the ultimate firewall, keeping us from eternal damnation and destruction. Praise God for Jesus, who is the buffer, the mediator, the intercessor between me and this holy God. Or the fire would fall in front of the congregation and you'd carry me out in a stretcher. I want you to have Nadab and Abihu in your mind. Good guys, serving the Lord, but doing it evidently with the wrong attitude, with the wrong things going on in their hearts, a carelessness in their thinking. I want you to see what Jesus teaches about our worship. And He's going to teach now a specific outworking. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount, we're in Matthew chapter 6, we're working our way through the Gospel of Matthew. And remember that as Jesus is teaching, He is dealing with issues of the heart. He's dealing with, with those who are broken in spirit. He's dealing with those who are meek. Those who are humble, those who come to God and they recognize their need for a Savior. He has expanded on the law and he said, look, it's not about this external keeping of the law, letter of the law. And we've had these six lessons that Jesus has gone through. Oh, so you've never taken the knife and killed anybody with the knife, but in your heart you've hated your brother, you're guilty of murder. And Jesus has dealt with the matter of the heart, not just external behavior. Now, in this day, this community of people is saturated with the teaching of rabbis and of Pharisees and Sadducees who are experts in the external keeping of the law. What really mattered to them is that you looked the part, that you act the part, that you do things the way they thought you should do it and the way they interpreted the law. And so Jesus is definitely upsetting everyone by coming in and saying, yes, it says that. And parts of what he did would quote from the Old Testament, but other parts of it were misinterpretations of the law or man's words that were added as though it was equal to God's law given in Exodus and so forth. And Jesus said, but I say to you, and he would always go to the heart of the matter, to the attitude. Yes, you've never committed adultery in the physical act, but what's going on in your imagination, I'm telling you, makes you guilty. And so Jesus is always dealing with the internals. So now, as we move into chapter 6, there's a new section into his sermon. It's like he's moved on to a new point in the Sermon on the Mount. He's wrapped up those six times. You have heard it said, but I say to you. And now, he's going to give three illustrations about how important this right attitude, those broken in spirit, those who are humble of heart, those who are truly meek in the eyes of God... How they are going to live out their good works and how it matters the attitude of their hearts. He continues to build on this theme because ultimately, as Jesus has already said in Matthew chapter 25, or in Matthew chapter 5, he has already reminded them that they are to do their good works. It's verse 16. Let your light so shine before others that they may see your good works. And give glory to your Father who's in heaven. So in 5.16, Jesus is reminding them that the goodness on the inside is going to show on the outside. And that people will see their good works and be turned their attention to God. And now he's going to warn them though how easy it is with our deceptive hearts to do good works for all the wrong reasons. And it doesn't count diddly squat with God. Let's read the text. We're going to read all 18 verses of this section verses 1 through 18. And I want you to see that there are three illustrations that God is going to give of ways that our spiritual service, like Nadab and Abihu, involved in spiritual acts of service or spiritual acts of worship, how if with the wrong attitude, God doesn't even count it. God sees it, and it counts for nothing if we have the wrong attitude. He's going to introduce the concept of what he's talking about in chapter 6, verse 1. Look what he says. Jesus is teaching, and he says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. So right away we know from the word beware that this is a warning passage. Jesus is warning us. So I've been teaching you about your hard attitude. I've been teaching you about purity of life. I've been teaching you about how to live out your good works. But I want to warn you. That as you do your good works, it is easy to do it for the wrong reasons. And don't do your acts of righteousness. Some Bibles might say alms right there. A-L-M-S. Don't do your alms before people. That's an old word that we don't use anymore, but it's a, it's a very precise word. It has to do with benevolent acts of kindness, specifically to poor people, usually involving money and food. Benevolent acts of kindness, usually to people who are less off, less better off than we, and it usually involves either giving money or giving food to help them out. It's a good thing. And so Jesus, it's translated in ESV, Jesus says, "...don't practice your righteousness." That is, as you exercise good works to those around you who are less fortunate than you, "...don't do it to be seen by others, for then you will have no reward from your Father in heaven." Now, I don't think he's talking about losing your salvation here. I don't think that's what the the deal is. What he's talking about is as we live for God and as Christ is seen in us, there will be a fruit of righteousness that is evident. But what he's saying is that you can take that, that righteous work. And if you think people are watching and you care about the opinion of people around you and you're wanting people to notice you and maybe you want them to think thoughts like, wow, that's really a great guy. Wow, I really wish I were like that guy or girl. Man, that is so good. Wow. And you know, we're pretty good at picking up on that stuff. And so we learn how to do that. So that people will pat us on the back and people will say, you're really good. I really thought that was great. And then you learn how to manipulate righteous works so that people say, wow. And God says, if that's the case, it's worthless. It's worthless. Look what he says. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Jesus is now going to give three ways that we do that. I want you to notice the parallelism in these three illustrations. He's going to use repeated phrases, three different kinds of repeated phrases, talking about doing things in the eyes, for the eyes of people. He's going to talk about what God thinks about it. He's going to talk about how that makes you a hypocrite. Illustration number one, okay? This whole thing, introduction of the verse, of the concept, verse one, beware warning of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Now, illustration number one, verse two. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Illustration number two, verse five. And when you pray, okay, verse two. And when you give, verse five. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. Okay, verse two. Don't do your alms before the needy as the hypocrites do. Don't pray like the hypocrites, verse 5. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and in the streets. Look at verse 2. They, the hypocrites do this in the synagogues and in the streets. Why? So that they may, verse 2, be praised by others. Verse 5, be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Verse 2, truly I say to you, they have received their their reward. Verse 5, truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Notice the parallelism. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. And now this famous prayer where He teaches His disciples to pray. Say it with me. It'll be a little bit jumbled from the translations. Let's say it together. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It's the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. You notice the ESV didn't translate the end part. For if you forgive others their trespasses, verse 14, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Illustration number 3, verse 16. And when you fast, okay? Alright, so verse 2, when you give. Verse 5, when you pray. Verse 16, when you fast. Three important spiritual activities that can all be done publicly. Do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. There it is, verse 2, as the hypocrites do. Verse 5, as the hypocrites do, to be seen by others. Verse 16, "...do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be..." There it is. "...seen by others." Verse 2, "...praised by others." Verse 5, "...seen by others." Verse 16, "...seen by others." Truly I say to you, they have received their reward." Repeat it again. The parallelism is obvious. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Verse 4, your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Verse 6, your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Verse, verse 18, your Father who sees in secret will reward you three illustrations of a concept introduced in chapter six, verse one of doing spiritual activity to be seen by people. So the first thing we have here in this unfolding of these three illustrations, number one today in our message is a warning about spiritual corruption. Number one, a warning about spiritual corruption. Isn't that just the way we are? Isn't it amazing how easy it is to do things cheerfully like wash pots and pans in the kitchen on a Wednesday night and be happy with people, but then to show up the next morning all by yourself and no one's in the building and all the pots and pans got left, and then you say, what's wrong with this place? If people are around, I'm happy for them to see me washing pots and pans, singing Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. And yes, I was a wretch. But when we're all alone, what does your heart say to you? Isn't it interesting how the eyes of people, and we have this tendency, a leaning towards a a spiritual bent of corruption, that we take good things, spiritual activities, and we twist them, and we turn them, and we turn them into something they were never intended to be. The reason for that comes through in the passage and it's part two of our message and that is to watch out for this internal seduction. Watch out for this internal seduction. What what are we talking about? Let's our eyes go to chapter 6, verse 2. In verse 1, he he brings it up. In order to be seen. In order to be seen. And then he goes on with this, uh, for our text today, now just the rest of verses 2 through 4. On the concept of giving. That when you give your alms, when you do acts of righteousness, this would be offerings, this would be donations, this would be food drives and clothing drives and giving needy things like like a car to somebody who needs a car. Somebody needs a hotel room paid because they're out of luck and they don't have a job and they need one more night and their their other checks going to come in tomorrow. And they need help. Well, yeah, yeah, people are, I'll write that check, sure. These alms, these needs. But Jesus is warning us about this internal seduction. It has to do with the aroma, the smell, the intoxicating aroma of personal praise from other people. It will take your heart and your brain and it will take it off the Lord and you become caught up in it. The idea that people will praise me if I do this. And I love that feeling. I love for people to say, what a great guy you are. Wow, what a nice thing it was that you did for those people. Yeah, you know, they didn't really deserve it, but I just had a heart for them. And so we become intoxicated with the aroma of the perfume, of the praise of people around us. And it's very, very seductive. And the next thing you know, the way we're hardwired in our hearts and our minds, we are doing things like Nadab and Abihu, we're doing right things at the right place, at the right time, with the wrong attitude. And it's unacceptable before the Lord. He doesn't want it. So we have this warning by Jesus about this spiritual bent of corruption where spiritual things can be turned away. Then we have this warning about this seductive this seductive nature of human praise. But I want you to notice then that Jesus gives a little bit of instruction. And this is the balance of our message today. Now, this instruction that Jesus gives. Okay, what kind of giving is acceptable to God? And so we want to receive, verse 2, some practical instruction. We've got to watch out for the spiritual corruption. We're going to be very much on guard about, the, about internal seduction. Okay, here's some instruction. Look what he says. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues. The first thing Jesus says, which is the first of five things I want to give you both here out of this text and some of Paul's writings as to helping us get a better handle on a biblical mindset of proper giving. How is it that I can give and it's acceptable to the Lord? The first thing I want you to see comes right here from this text in verse 2, and it is number one, Jesus instructs us to give quietly, not obviously. Give quietly, not obviously. What do we mean by that? Look what he says in the text. Jesus is giving instruction now. Thus... When you give to the needy, and you give alms, okay, alms was there, ESV translates it, give to the needy, food or money, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues. So once again this week, like in other past weeks in Sermon on the Mount, we know that Jesus' audience... Probably understood exactly what he was referring to as to the customs of their day when Jesus said, Sound the trumpets for their giving at the temple or even in the streets. Bible commentaries aren't 100% sure exactly what Jesus is referring to, but it doesn't matter. The illustration still works. Even if it's just uh, totally hypothetical, as though somebody's going to have a bugle or a trumpet and they're going to go, I'm going to give. So that's the point. But it's likely that in their giving, there were a couple things that happened. It is possible, and some research by historians show, that in the temple, that the Pharisees and Sadducees and religious leaders had developed a system whereby certain days and certain calls to worship were done with the chauffeur, a trumpet, that ram's horn. You've had Willem Griffey blow his horn here before on holy days and stuff, that chauffeur, and he blows the horn and they would sound the trumpets so that people knew a certain kind of worship or a certain kind of offering was going to be taken. And so people who heard the trumpet blow would go scurrying down the street to make sure that they gave at that particular offering, hoping that everybody was noticing that they were scurrying down the street because the trumpet had blown and they wanted to give the offering. There is some speculation about that concept. Um, It seems that it's more credible to believe that what Jesus is talking about and that what his audience would have understood was that the offering boxes at the temple were called chauffeur. They had the word chauffeur in them. They were trumpet boxes because they had a funnel shape to the mouth where people would throw in their offerings and it would shoot down in like a trumpet. And so they used the word chauffeur in the name of that offering box. These chauffeur boxes and so it would be the same thing as saying these trumpet boxes. Chauffeur means trumpet, and is the idea of a trumpet. And so people knew how to give to make their money sound loud when it rattled around. You know, like one of those games where you put the quarter in and it goes around and around and around the thing and it drops in and you kind of win something. And so they had this, this trumpet mouth offering boxes, and if you changed out your money into hard money and you hit it hard and let it sprinkle around, it made a lot of noise and people could hear the crash of all that money going in the box and they could go, wow, he's a good giver. And without admitting it to yourself, you could be involved in that. It was a way of blowing the trumpet to announce your giving. Hey everybody, I just gave a lot of money. It's a good thing. Why don't you give a lot of money? I was thinking, how do we blow the trumpet? How do we blow the trumpet in our giving? I don't know. You know, we all have to examine our hearts. Because you also notice that this is is setting up a tension in these three illustrations. It sets up a tension that we live with all the time, right? The eyes of God in my heart, the eyes of people upon my life. And I'm in this tension of living for God, of what's going on in my heart, and then living for what the eyes of people see. And only I can know the truth. Through the examination of the Holy Spirit and the convicting power of the Holy Spirit and the washing of His Word in my life, do I tell myself the truth of what God is seeing in my heart as opposed to what people are seeing? And am I a hypocrite? But I was thinking I came up with three R's. I think they're kind of neat, so I thought I'd share them with you. Three ways we blow the trumpet. They all start with R. The first one is we roar about it. Roaring. The second is routing. And the third is reading. Let me explain. How do we blow the trumpet with our giving? We talk about it. We, we roar about it. Hey! Or maybe it's not that obvious, but we're talking about it. We let people know adding to sentences that could be left unsaid about how I gave or how much I gave or I wonder how much the offering was. I gave to that offering. I'm really interested in that work. And we roar about it. The other thing is routing. If you find yourself routing your offering through certain departments or through certain people that are unnecessary so that they just might open the envelope and see... I've had this happen to me through the years in ministry. People will come in, and I think often well-intentioned. But we have to guard our hearts. And they will come in and even make an appointment and come to me because they want to write a check to the church. Huh. Always glad to take those checks. Why did they route it through my office? Where are you routing this thing? And then reading. Another way we blow the trumpet, not only by roaring about it, by routing it through certain people, but by reading my name. If you give in a certain way and you can read your name in public about that, you want to watch out. Actually, this is a really common thing in Christian organizations. Here's what they do. If you're a big-time giver... If you're a big-time giver, they'll build a building and name it after you. And they'll praise God for the money, but at the ceremony where they dedicate the building, you're going to get to be on the platform and your name's going to be in the program and your name's going to be unfolded on the sign out in front. I'm not saying that's wrong necessarily. I'm saying it's a rare person who can handle that. More common to us low-level, low-income givers is a plaque on a wall, the gold club, the silver club, the bronze club. You gave so much money to supply this classroom. You gave this and that. And we put our name on a plaque and you can read your name. If you can read your name in the church newsletter, in the annual ministry newsletter that goes out, these people gave this amount to the organization. This past. If you can read it, I'm telling you, that's... That's dangerous turf. Jesus said, don't blow the trumpets. Don't talk about it. Do it in secret. The idea is to give quietly, not obviously. One of the questions that this brings up, though, is should we keep a record of our giving? Later in the passage, he's going to say, don't even let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. So when I give and there's a record kept of my giving, is that appropriate or does that violate this standard? In other words, you give all year long and you give money, you either put it in an envelope, you write it in a check, and then the office, the, the business office here at church keeps a record at the end of the year you get a printout and you have a printout of everything you gave and you, you have a record. Well, is that secret or not? Well, this is an interesting concept, isn't it? And what I think is that if you can give... In such a way that it is better stewardship of your money, that is for tax deductible purposes. You're being a good steward. The government's taking less of your money. It's not that we shouldn't pay our taxes. We know we have a biblical mandate for that. But if you can be a better steward of your money, there is a systematic way to do that. And I don't think it's wrong to keep a record. However, if that violates your conscience based upon this passage, you should stop doing it. If it violates your conscience, you stop doing it. It's also why, out of this passage and others like it, that giving is very private here. It should be private. It should be done quietly. And it should not be done in an obvious manner. And there are very few people who know what you give here. I'm one of the people that has no idea what people give. Unless, of course, they see that it's routed through my desk. Now, once in a while, that's not inappropriate. There is specific, special kind of giving. They need to talk about it. They need to work out the details of how this can unfold. And they don't know who did they come and they talk about how can this work. We have to do that. But giving is very private. There's only a small handful of people. The senior pastor doesn't know anything about it. The youth pastor doesn't know Our business pastor knows about it. He doesn't look at it regularly, but he has to have access to certain documents to do his job. So our business office has some accessibility. It's never shown to me. The chairman of our elders never sees it. The chairman of our deacon never sees it. There's just a small accounting team that sees it. That's it. That's the way it should be, right? So quietly, secretly, it's your business how you give. It's not to be done publicly. Jesus goes on to say, Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet, so we are to give quietly, not obviously. He goes on to say, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised for others. The idea is, is that the reason that we give, then God sees our hearts, that we are Hypocritical. Now that's a big word. It's used in all three of these passages, all three of these illustrations that we're hypocrites in the eyes of God if we're giving inappropriately for the praise of people. Let's talk about being a hypocrite for just a minute. We were eating supper Thursday night and um, it was kind of late. Janet had been to the, My wife Janet had been to the grocery store and she told me just a really interesting story at the supper table. She had been at the grocery store, and it was kind of empty, and she had brought her cart up to the checkout counter, and there were two clerks there, two grocery store employees, and they were talking, and it was evident by the way they were talking and what they were saying that there was some juice going on around the grocery store, and Janet said something to that effect, oh, scandal in the grocery store. And they turned to her, and they were more than happy to fill her in on the scandal, (laughs) And what had happened was, um, recently before that, some guy who's an employee, so employees were talking about another employee, had had his wife drop him off at work that morning, and he was to work all day, and she surprised him that day and came to eat lunch with him. And he wasn't there. And so they told her just go sit out on your car and watch, he'll be back. And sure enough, he shows up with the girl he had rendezvoused with. And they had a big fight right there in the grocery store parking lot. And she was swinging at him and hitting him. And that's what the grocery store clerks were talking about. And by this time, another person had pushed their cart up behind Janet's and was waiting at the counter. And they were all ears. And one of the clerks who was telling the story said, and that guy was one of those. And he paused and he said, Christians, Christians. And he said, the born-again type. And the person who had come in their cart behind Janet said, they're the worst kind. The church is full of hypocrites, isn't it? Doesn't the world think that? And the world can think it for all kinds of reasons, and people who profess the name of Christ can blow their testimony all over the place. You know, if the church is full of hypocrites in the eyes of God, that's ultimately what really matters, isn't it? That when God looks down and he sees us blowing our trumpets, and he said, That's just like the hypocrites do it. If I'm doing it just like the hypocrites do it, what does that make me? Hypocrite. He goes on to say, Don't let your giving, don't let your right hand know then what your left hand is doing. So not only do we give quietly, we give quietly and not obviously. I think this idea of the left hand not knowing what the right hand doing has something to do with spontaneity. At the moment giving, and we should give number two, spontaneously, and though 1 Corinthians 16, 2, we should give systematically. So there's multiple ways that we should give. We should give spontaneously and systematically. If we were to do continue our Bible study, let me just rattle off what we would say in our list here, of understanding a biblical concept of giving from our Lord's teaching right here in this passage so that we do not give like the hypocrites give. We should, number one, give quietly, not obviously. We should give spontaneously and systematically, 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2. Secondly, we could turn, thirdly, we could turn to 2 Corinthians 9, 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9 are all about giving. Paul instructing the Corinthian believers about giving. Here's a couple more principles. Let me just rattle them off. Number three, give cheerfully, not grudgingly. Give cheerfully, not grudgingly. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7. 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Listen to me closely. You hear me say this from this pulpit. When the offering is taken, and we don't say a ton about money. Once in a while we have to speak about money. It's important. But if you are ever challenged to give or asked to give an offering, or asked to give above and beyond your regular offering, always know that if you cannot do that cheerfully, don't do it. That releases you from giving. Nobody needs to know it. God sees your heart. Never give grudgingly. Only give cheerfully because it says in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, and 8, it says because God loves, what kind of a giver? A cheerful giver. Gives a cheerful giver. Fourthly, we're to give generously and not sparingly. We're to give generously and not sparingly. That's 2 Corinthians chapter nine, verses six through twelve, especially verses ten through twelve. Listen, here's the idea: you have a couple ones, you got a five, you got two tens, you got a twenty in your pocket, and the missionary spoken. And your heart stirred a little bit. And you think, I ought to give in this offering to this. That's totally your business. You should as carefully as possible reach in your pocket. People don't need to see you giving. You don't clear your throat. You don't make a big deal about standing up and getting your wallet out of your pocket. Yet's blowing your trumpet. right? And you pull your money out of your pocket. And in your heart all of a sudden it says, Oh man, we were going to go to Applebee's today. I gotta go to Al- I'll give him two bucks. But in your mind, you thought you would give them 20 when you started into it. But then when you got the money in your hand, yeah, like, I got my twos, my five, my 10, my 20. I'm going to have to have my 20 to pull off Applebee's today. I'll give them my two bucks. Yeah, from Africa. It goes a long ways. <laughs> Listen, you have to be really, really careful to quench the Spirit of God at work in you. Because the flesh... And the tendency of the nature of our flesh is to give selfishly, not generously. This tendency is to give sparingly, not generously. God loves a cheerful, the word is hilarious giver. God loves a generous giver. Finally, God lo- loves it when we give sacrificially, not selfishly. Don't give generously. Give, gener- give generously, not sparingly. Second Corinthians 9, 6-12. And number five, give sacrificially, not selfishly. This is 2 Samuel 24, 24. David was going to worship the Lord. He wanted to give a sacrifice. He needed to worship. There had been huge issues going on. God had lifted his hand with a plague that had killed people. David needed to worship. He's up at this guy's place. Guy offers him his oxen, the wooden yoke for on the oxen and stuff said you want to worship here's the sacrifices here's the wood use my threshing floor it's all here take it david refused remember what he said he said i will not offer to god something that costs me nothing now it's not wrong to give gifts that cost you nothing i did it to dan hancho yesterday <laughs> elizabeth had a surprise party for him he said don't bring any gifts that stinks turned turning 40 needs some gifts so I threw a couple books he might already have them they were brand new I hadn't written in them yet I didn't pay for them in a bag I threw a, a utility knife that was brand new in there and I threw a pretty cool clip on pocket knife that was brand new in there but all had been given to me I was regifting them in my pile of loot <laughs> yeah you know who gave them to me already didn't cost me a thing Dan, there you go. Worthless gifts. (laughs) I'm so happy to give them gifts. I give them gifts. You know how it is? I'll give of my surplus with great joy. When's the last time we ever gave sacrificially? When's the last time you could feel it when you gave? You gave. Nobody knew but the Spirit of God convicting your heart. I wonder how hypocritical we really are in the eyes of God. And I wonder if if this was still the days of Nadab and Abihu, how many of us would have been toast by now, doing spiritual things with the wrong heart attitude. Let's pray. Father, we need your help. We need your Spirit to convict us. We need right attitudes and Just to be careful. We're so vulnerable to the intoxicating aroma of the praise of people. And we want so much for our lives to just be a beautiful aroma to you. And so teach us through these things. Bring these things to mind all week. Help us to learn how to give biblically. Help us to learn how to recognize when the flesh is welling up within us. Help us to care more about your eyes upon our hearts than people's eyes upon our activities. Show us how to just be humble, quiet, stealth givers. People who give under the radar. Nobody knows it but you. And may that bring us great joy and one day great reward. It's in Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen.